Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'll be reading the scripture today. Um, we are in the book of 1 John, and we'll be reading uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Is this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is also, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we are working through a series right now that we're calling The Face of Love, and we're tracking through this book of 1 John, which, which was written by the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' first followers. And this is a book that is talking to us about how God has made his, his love known to us most fully by sending his very son, Jesus Christ, into the world to actually show us what love looks like and to transform our own hearts so we can actually be people who love with the same kind of love that God has for us. This is what this passage just talked about. It's my privilege this morning to welcome Emily Crow. Uh, she's going to be sharing uh, the message with us this morning. Um, and uh, come on up, Emily. Yep. Uh, she uh, works with an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is an organization that has uh, uh, groups and does Christian ministry on university campuses all across the country. So Emily is uh, in a role that oversees some of the ministries that are going on a few of the campuses at uh, in the Toronto area, which is an incredible privilege and role. Um, she asked me to just kind of get the elephant in the room, uh, uh, out of the room. She is pregnant. She's in that stage, she said, you know, where... You might be wondering if she just kind of had a few more Twinkies than she should, or uh, no, it's actually a bun in the oven. And so now you can take your <laughs> eyes off the stomach, put them on the face, uh, and focus with us as she shares. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank it's you. great that you're here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good morning. What is one word that you would use to describe God? If I asked you to complete the sentence, God is blank. What would you say? Honestly, what would you say? And I assume that if we go around the room and ask every person to fill in the sentence for me, we would cover a variety of answers. Um, some of us might say, God is just, or God is kind, or God is good. And I'm enough of a realist to know that we might 
have some answers on the other side of the spectrum. Perhaps God is distant, or God is fiction, or God is cruel. Um, A.W. Tozer says that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because whether you like it or not, the way you view God affects your worldview and how you live in response to that. And for many of us, knowing who God really is feels mysterious at best um, and more often impossible to understand. But when we look at the scripture, particularly in this letter of 1 John, we don't have to wonder who God is. Um, His essence and his character is summarized in one word, and that word is love. So if there's one thing that we need to know about who God is, it's that he is love. And this morning, I just want to unpack what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Um, For those of you who have been tracking with this series, The Face of Love, these sermons might begin to feel a little repetitive. And if that's true, then I want to say, well done. You've been paying attention. It does feel repetitive. And um, the very first sermon of the series, Malcolm gave this illustration of the book of 1 John as spiral graphs. So these, these things that kind of go around and around and around. And that's exactly how the letter's written. We're constantly going back to these certain themes. And I, I have to wonder, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe John does that on purpose because there's actually something we really need to understand that he really wants us to get. Um, So guess what I'm going to talk about today? Love. You got it. (laughs) And love is something that we've been trying to define and understand for generations. Um, In English, so I speak a bit of Mandarin, um, and I've realized that English is a particularly difficult language to understand love in because we only have one word that covers so much meaning, right? We use it, like Vijay talked about, we use it to describe how we love chocolate, but also how we love our children or our family. Um, And it's just, it's not really quite equal, but it makes it even harder for us to understand. And so we try to unpack it and understand it through songs or um, through phrases. So if I sang a love song to you today, you probably could sing along because we all know it. We we try to understand. We want to understand it. And in fact, I'm going to do an experiment, okay? So um, ready? We're going to see if we can sing along together, okay? So all you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Yay, it works! (laughs) My husband didn't think it would work but it works. (laughs) Um, And we try to understand it through crafty phrases like love is blind or all's fair in love and war. And one that I use all the time with my staff and interns is um, love isn't something you feel, it's something you do. But actually, scripture defines love as neither something you feel or do. Scripture defines love as someone you know. Someone you know defines it as God, which means that Whatever God did or does or will do is what love is. And that's why we're calling this series The Face of Love. So I'm in campus ministry. I work with young people across the GTA, six different campuses. Um, A lot of my students grew up in the church. And if you've been around the church long enough, you know that we've kind of developed this language um, that I like to call Christianese, okay? So it's a lot of like foreign words. And it can be difficult to understand if you're new to the church. I apologize for that. I'm going to try not to use Christianese as much as I can. Um, But sometimes my students will say things like, I have been sanctified by grace, or I am in the pursuit of holiness. And um, (laughs) I started to realize, like, do you guys even know what that means? What do you mean when you say that? What does that even mean? Um, And 
uh, kind of scarily, they, they don't. We don't know what it means because we've just, we've overused, we've over-repeated these things. And one of the things that we have over-repeated again and again and again is God loves you or God is love. And so I want to just really unpack and be really practical. What does that mean? What does that mean? Um, so we've read the scripture from 1 John. And I just love how practical John is to the church in Ephesus. Now, if you just read through the letter straight, you will notice that I think a dozen times or more, John says, this is how we know, da, 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 da. This is how we know, because he just really wants the church to understand why we believe the things that we do and why we live the way that we live. Um, So as I ask this question, how do we live a life in and out of love? John gives us some really practical points, and we're going to have them up on the screen, okay? So um, if we look at the text we just read, um, we see his instruction is love one another. Love one another, verse 7. Be born of God and know God, verses 7 and 8. Live in him, which is evidenced by what? By his Holy Spirit. See and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And finally, his love is completed, or that word could also be translated as perfected. His love is perfected in us that when in this world we are like Jesus and when we love one another. So we could probably do an entire sermon series on each one of these points. Um, But... um, There's a couple that John repeats again and again, and as I was reading the book, I was like, okay, dude, I get the point. I will preach on these two things. So the first one is um, John emphasizes again and again and again that we love because first, because first God loves us. We have talked a lot in this series about loving one another and loving God, but I kind of want to just rewind a little bit, take a step back, and, and talk about why we do that. Why we do that? We do that because God first loves us. He is the initiator, the source, the absolute beginning and end of love. And if there's one thing that he wants us to understand about his character, it's that he loves us first. He is the initiator. He loves us first. And we see this modeled even in the relationship of God the Father with his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, And we see this really clearly through a pivotal moment in Jesus' life, which is recorded in all four of his biographies, and that is his baptism. So I have pulled the the baptism story from the Gospel of Luke, which we're going to put up on the screen. And this is Luke chapter 3. Let's just read it briefly. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So the first and probably most important thing we learn about Jesus as he begins his ministry is that he is loved. He is loved. And God is pleased with him. He hasn't done anything yet. All we know is that he was born, like some awesome, amazing birth. But then there's years that we have really no idea what Jesus did. We have a couple of narratives here and there. But up until this point, Jesus hasn't done anything of real significance. So what are you well pleased with, God? What are you well pleased with? And I think about all the things that God could have said. He could have said, okay, everyone, ta-da, here's your Messiah that you've been waiting for. Or he could have said, Jesus, don't forget to watch out for that Judas guy, okay? Just... 
careful. Or you could have said, and don't forget your quiet time. Pray every morning and journal. Um, but he doesn't. He doesn't say that. What he simply tells him is that he loves him and that he's already pleased. He's already pleased with who Jesus is. And this is the necessary thing we must understand about the Christian faith is that it must begin and flow with the deep understanding that we are loved by God before we do anything. We are loved. Um, and so if you leave here this morning with one thing, if, you, if you're going to zone out for the rest of this talk, I just want you to hear one thing today, and it's that before you do anything, God loves you. You cannot earn or deserve his love. Um, last week, Sunder spoke about um, the issue of hatred and anger towards one another and how that often comes from a wounded ego. And I actually believe that the antidote to the wounded ego is becoming aware and familiar with God's unfailing love, even in the midst of failure. So I want to tell you about um, a particular season of failure in my life and it happened to be this past year, so it's nice and fresh, which is great. <laughs> um, so like I said, I'm on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Um, one thing that's weird about us is we love personality tests. Like, we're, we love them. Like, any personality test, Myers-Briggs, Colby, SEMA, we are unhealthily obsessed <laughs> with um, personality tests. Um, one of the ones I've recently been into is the Enneagram, which tells you about, like, your deep sin, right? Like, all your problems. And I discovered recently that I'm a three, Okay, so a three is the fear of failure. So I am terrified of failure. And I'm in full-time ministry, which is a scary thing because that just means I'm driven to do, 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 save more people, grow the fellowship, win people for the gospel. Um, but I'm also, I'm a three with the wing of a two, which means I have the need to be loved or the need for approval. So my ultimate fear is failure in relationships and letting people down. Um, so as Tony mentioned this year, I stepped into a new role, and so I, um, I now direct the ministry in the GTA. And after some really painful exits of staff, I inherited a crew of brand new, spanking new staff at York University, and then another crew of really hurting and jaded older staff in the largest city in Canada. Needless to say, I was over my head. Um, throw in the case, um, like throw in the mix, a case of mono in the fall, and then some really, really painful personal stuff that my husband and I were going through, as well as first trimester pregnancy this past um, semester, and um, things I just couldn't give myself to the ministry that in the ways that I should have, and things inevitably started to unravel. So conflict started to infect the teams. Um, I had to make a 5 a.m. trip to the emergency room with one of my staff because she was her body was literally shutting down from the stress of the ministry. And then York goes on strike, and all the momentum that we have on campus just feels like it falls flat. So come to the end of the term, the fellowships haven't really grown. Staff have left, and on paper, my first year as a director is a total flop. And this just, like presses all the triggers inside of me around failure and success and how I define myself. Um, and, I, and I hit rock bottom. And for me, rock bottom looks like massive binging of Netflix and lying in my bed in the dark. <laughs> so talk about wounded ego. And as I would lie in bed, I would just like 
overly dwell on these questions of where did I go wrong? Am I too young? Am I too immature? If only I had a seminary degree or <laughs> all the things that I could have done differently or that I should have done differently and all the mistakes that I made and just I overly criticized myself. Um, but this voice in my head kept saying, um, you're not asking the right question. You're not asking the right question because it's not about what, what I did wrong because Mistakes are inevitable and failure is inevitable, right? That's life. Um, but there is a place that I misstepped or that I, 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 I did go wrong, and that is that I forgot that I'm fully loved, not based on my performance. Like, I know this in my head, but I constantly forget that in my heart. Um, rock bottom came because I just didn't rest in the assurance that God is already pleased with me. <laughs> despite the outside circumstances, and that has no effect on that. And so here I am on the cusp of turning 30 and just starting over, starting over. And I'm feeling terrible about myself. I'm like, what happened for the past seven years? What was all for nothing? But then Jesus gently reminded me that he didn't even begin his ministry until he was 30. And what qualified Jesus is that he was loved by God. And what qualifies me is that I'm loved by God. And what qualifies you is that you are loved by God. And I just have to confess that I really wrestle with this. Um, I want to be qualified through my accomplishments. I want to be able to say that I achieved something because I want the control and I want the credit. And that's the super frustrating thing about being a Christian, about this faith, is that you can't be in it for the credit or try to earn the approval because the approval is given to you from the very beginning. And that's what's so unique about the Christian faith. Is it is the only faith that is completely not about earning. And for an overachiever like me, that can be really hard. So we must understand that there is nothing we can do to earn or deserve or lose the approval and the favor of God because it doesn't depend on us. I repeat, it does not depend on us. It is steady and secure and the only thing in this life that never changes. So God's love is completely irrelevant to your behavior, your achievements, your attitude, your doubts, your sin, what your family thinks about you, what your boss thinks about you, what you or your spouse said to one another in anger. Before you do anything in life, as you lie in bed each morning, God's favor and love rests upon you, and that is unchanging. Which is something really elusive in our culture. I don't think we can quite comprehend it. Um, and it's almost like we need someone like John to remind us again and again and again that God loves us, that God is love. I think this is the reason that John keeps repeating himself again and again and again, because we can't fathom this kind of love. The only person we can really thank for this kind of love is Jesus. Because when Jesus came to earth and died and rose again, he, his, his, um, all of our sin and failure was completely covered by him. Our boy Tim Keller says, if you're a Christian, God honors you as if you have done everything Jesus has done. Which means that when God sees me, when God sees you, he sees Jesus. And God is always well-pleased with Jesus, which means that God is well-pleased with, with you and with me if you call yourself a Christian. And that is the magnificence of the cross. 
And I don't think we quite grasp the radicalness of this grace. I think most, when most of us think about God, um, he, we think that he sees us with disappointment or anger and that we're never enough. Um, that he sees all the places we failed to meet the mark and we just have to like, beg for like, forgiveness every day. We see him as a taskmaster who's pushing us to do more for him. And we see his will as this mystery that we're trying to decode. Um, but this is not new covenant faith. This kind of thinking belongs to a covenant that the author of Hebrews calls weak and useless. And when we think about God like this, we diminish what Jesus did on the cross. Because the power of Jesus' death and resurrection is that every failure, every fear, every mistake you've ever made and will make has already been accounted for and paid for by Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. That is good news. And therefore, this faith is all about Jesus. And let me be even more clear, God's grace is not about you. It is all about Jesus. And for myself and others in this room, we have to ask the question, if it's not about me, do I even want it? Do I even want God's love? If it means I'm never going to get all the credit for all I've done, do I even want this? And I think we would say, of course we want it. Of course we do. But the way we live reflects that we really don't. The way we live reflects that we want it on our terms, through our good works, through our achievements, or being an awesome parent or an awesome environmentalist or a friend or whatever we find our value in. And this is a dangerous way to live. Because as I'm learning the hard way, failure in life and failure on my part is inevitable. Jesus is the only way to the perfect love of God. And man, after a season like I've just had, I really want a love that doesn't depend on me. John says in his letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love, which is the love demonstrated by Jesus on the cross, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And when he talks about punishment, he's talking about judgment, the day of judgment. John says, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And I would rephrase that as the one who fears has not understood the power of the cross or the one who fears has not understood God's grace. So if you call yourself a Christian on that day when you meet God face to face, you do not need to be afraid because you will not be punishment. That punishment has been paid in full by Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't want to miss an obvious point here. Um, Understanding that you are loved and living a life of love requires that you are in an actual relationship with love, okay, with Jesus. And in North America, we tend to keep Jesus and God uh, very abstract. Um, We we talk about it a lot, but we don't don't get tangible with God. Um, And I really think it's killing us as Christians keeping Jesus in the abstract. We've got to get tangible with God, and the way we do that is through his Holy Spirit, which is another sermon for another day. You can invite me back in the fall. (laughs) Um, Jesus heard God's voice speak to him, and God is still speaking, and God speaks to me. He wants to speak with you. The living God longs to be in relationship with you, and relationships 101, the foundation is communication. The foundation is communication. Communication with God is what we call prayer. And it is the lifeline of the follower of Jesus. 
So if you would like to explore this idea of being in relationship with God or hearing God's voice, come and talk to me after the service or one of the staff. We love to help people with this. It's our favorite. Um, So John reminds us again and again that we love because God first loves us. And the second thing that John drives in his letter and that we are driving in this series is love each other. Love one another. So I've been in church for the most of my life, except for a brief stint in high school. Um, I'm a pastor's kid. I, I've been in full-time ministry now for seven years in three different countries. And one thing that I have observed about Christians, it's pretty much the same, is um, we really struggle to love each other. We don't do a great job at it. And this isn't a new thing. Um, We see this all over the New Testament of the early church. And um, recently I've been thinking particularly about a church in a city called Corinth. And man, they had some issues. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to them that we have in the New Testament. And if you read it, you see there's all kinds of stuff going on. Like they're sleeping around. They're super legalistic about spiritual gifts. And they make some people have spiritual gifts to prove that you're saved. And it's just a huge mess. And so in the midst of talking about the spiritual gifts and Paul trying to help them understand, he adds this section about how they should love each other. And this scripture is probably one of the most famous scriptures. If you're a non-Christian, you probably even know this scripture as well. And and we often use it as a way to describe romantic love. We read it at weddings a lot. But actually, this scripture is about how we in the church are meant to love each other. So let's um, turn there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Um, It's going to be up on the screen, I hope. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And this is how we are asked to love each other in the church. And part of the reason I think um, we struggle with this so much is that we haven't got the first point. We haven't quite understood God's love. And we haven't been secure in God's love. So um, back in April, when I was asked to speak um, on this text, God gave me a word um, for us today. And um, to be honest, I really wrestled with speaking on it. But here I am trying to be faithful. Um, So I want to address something that I've observed in myself and in the the North American church, and that is the issue of offense. Um, Yeah, and I didn't want to talk about it ironically because I didn't want to offend people. Um, Here we go. So um, in in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his followers, they will know that you are my followers by your love for each other. But actually, I think that Nowadays, the world knows that we're Jesus' followers, that we're Christians, by our offendedness. And everything I'm about to say, um, I see first and foremost in myself, um, but I also see in the church. Um, Man, I'm offended. I'm offended by 
um, by the world and by other Christians and by even by my own self. I offend my own self at times. Um, I'm offended when people drive too fast or when people drive too slow. Actually, just driving in Toronto is offensive. Can I get an amen to that? Uh, <laughs> I'm offended by worship music that's too wordy or too repetitive. Where after a sermon or a Christian event, I jump to the criticism, all the things that were said or done that I disagree with. I constantly feel pressured to choose a side within the Christian world. Am I an evangelical or a Pentecostal? Am I a progressive or a conservative? I don't know, man. I just want to follow Jesus. Um, I'm offended when someone makes a joking comment about my hair or my personality. And man, don't even get me started on social media. Ooh, it has exacerbated this problem exponentially because you can't relay tone on, on the internet. And so we tend to assume the worst, and it's just a painful, awful mess. And the amount of offense and division that has come from emails and social media is heartbreaking. Let's just, be, let's just work on being slow to anger next time we're on Facebook, or as my husband calls, offense book. Um, <laughs> this issue of offense in the church reminds me of a story in the Gospel of Luke. Um, actually, it's recorded in many of the Gospels, where Jesus is at a social event at a religious leader's house. And he walks in, and it's a pretty formal dinner. Um, he walks in, he sits down, and all of a sudden, this woman comes in. And she's, the, the author calls her a sinner. Okay, So we know she's involved in some illicit activities. So she comes in, and she brings this bottle of perfume that's worth a year's wages. And she breaks it open and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. Um, and what happened? And like, granted, okay, that, that's a socially awkward situation. Let's just be real. Like, even in today, that would be super weird. Like, if I cried on someone's feet and washed them with my hair, you guys would be like, what is happening? Um, but Jesus' followers, what they say is, this perfume could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. This is so inappropriate. And please forgive my cynicism here, but I often hear Christians say stuff like that, even today. We could have used this money for better things. This is so inappropriate in the church. Um, we nitpick and we criticize and we dwell in the offense. When something weird happens in church, we jump to suspicion and we're like, <gasps> this was wrong, this is bad. Um, and I am so guilty of this. Um, but this is not the way of Jesus. Church, this is not the way of Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he honors her. He honors her. He tells people in the room that the thing that she has done will be remembered for generations. And it has. Because that is known as one of the greatest acts of worship in all of Scripture. We are, not, we are called to not hold a record of wrongs, to not be easily angered, to believe the best of each other. So why do we so often jump to suspicion and offense? I think it's because we don't understand who God is. Because when we think about God, we don't see him as patient and kind and slow to anger and not keeping a record of wrongs. We really don't get God's unconditional love. And therefore, our love has strings and conditions attached. And this issue of offense has exposed the truth of what we really think about God. And that is scary. Because I think God wants to say to the North American church, stop being offended on my behalf. Because I am more patient and kind and good than you can ever imagine. 
I am the embodiment of love. Know this for yourself and show the world that this is who I truly am. I am the embodiment of love and forgiveness and grace. This is our God. John says in the text that whoever lives in love lives in God. Offense prioritizes self, but love prioritizes others. So let's be known for love and not offendedness. So here's what I've observed um, when we love others' insecurity of knowing that we're loved. And I mostly have gotten this from, through observing um, heroes of the faith within our own congregation and throughout history. Um, we become supernaturally gracious. We can let go of our own agenda. We can let go of our Christian programs and our own ambitions. We can submit joyfully to the challenges that God invites us into. We are free to love even the difficult people that hurt us. We're able to love people that hate God, that hate Christians, that are, we would call our enemies. Um, because what we see is that God's defense is love. Love breaks down walls. It breaks down everything that comes against it. This is the kind of love that is able to transform, and this is the kind of love that changes the world. So I have two invitations for you this morning. The first invitation is no love. No love the person. Woo! <laughs> um, no love the person. Go from the abstract to the tangible in your faith. Um, you can start just by reading through the scriptures. I particularly suggest one of the four gospels or one of the four biographies of Jesus. Um, or you can also just be with love himself. Jesus is alive and he wants to be with you. Ask him. Okay, so my challenge for you this week is to ask Jesus to show you how much he loves you. Um, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you're giving God the silent treatment, I don't really know where you're at, but I want to challenge you to ask God to show you how much he loves you. Um, and I just, okay, so I, I want to be really real uh, with you guys this morning. So um, I'm asking God this right now for him to show me how much he loves me. But the truth is that um, from, I'm not really healed from this past season. Um, I wish I could say that I'm up here preaching with full assurance that I know that I'm loved and I'm totally secure in that. Um, but the truth is that I'm still pretty raw, still pretty raw from the hurt um, that happened. Um, this was probably the most difficult sermon I've ever had to write in my life. And there were so many times that I almost called VJ and said, I'm really sorry, you just need to get someone else. Um, I can't do it. Because um, I'm not, like, I, I, I'm just not in, I can't tell you the five-point plan of how to get secure in God's love today. Um, but what I can tell you is that I'm in process, and I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, and for me, this has looked like slowing down a lot in my life and becoming more of the ways that God shows me his love. Um, this has been particularly true through my home group. Like, I don't think I would have survived this past season without my home group. They loved me so well um, through the struggles of this past year. Um, God showed me his love through precious time with friends around a fire. Yeah, you know who you are. <laughs> through quiet walks on a beautiful Toronto summer's day. Um, through good night's sleep after months and months of insomnia. And maybe for some of you, God will show you his love through others, um, through nature or art. Maybe for some of you, it will be through food or beauty or 
uh, or music or his word. I don't know you. I don't know how you're wired. But God knows how you're wired. And God is really gentle and subtle in the ways that he shows his love for you. So pay attention. My challenge is for you to pay attention this week. Um, And secondly, my uh, invitation is to love others the way that God has loved you. Reflect on the ways that you have loved or not loved people around you. Repent if you have lacked. Um, And love others the way that you have been radically loved. Um, John says in chapter 1 of 1 John, uh, if we confess our sins and he is faithful, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 